Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. to say my first guest is a man who has plenty to say about the game and hopes to have plenty to say about the game for many years to come hopefully with more raids to Royal Ascot his first this year after 37 years with a license comes in the shape of Enzo's lad who will run in the King's Stand and then all being well will run in the Diamond Jubilee Stakes as well it has been an extraordinary and oftentimes challenging journey for my first guest this morning, as he's about to tell you. I'm delighted to welcome to the Luck on Sunday studio, Michael Pittman. Michael, good morning. Yeah, good morning, mate. Good morning to all the people out there watching. Yeah. Now, you've been landed in England here for a good few days now. It's been an amazing week for you. Lots of attention. How are you enjoying it? Um, yeah, it, it, it has been good. I mean, it's, um, in some ways, it's been overwhelming, the attention we're getting, because, I mean, we've, let's face it, we've got a 50 to 60 to 1 shot. But obviously, my journey to get here um, is what's the interesting thing. And, and I've been very open about it all the way through, because I hope that in some way I give other people the encouragement to press on as well. Let's take it all the way back to, to the beginning. You've been training for nearly four decades now, but you didn't really have any, any background or established background in horse racing, did you? No, except... Picking up tickets when I was a little kid and um, probably betting too much when I was slightly older, you know. Um, but um, no, I was always keen on racing, obviously, but um, I never worked for anybody, never earned $1 working in a stable or anything like that. I was a reasonably gifted young golfer, um, played a lot of sport. Um, that's what mum and dad encouraged us to do. There were six children in the family. And, um, but when I met my wife, Diane, um, we decided that we'd have a go horse training. And I, I had my licence for only one month. And, and when I got my licence, other trainers said I got it in a week mix raffle. I should never have got a licence. And they're probably right, to be honest. Um, but I was given a chance because of my sporting background and other things. And um, But a month into it, I had a really bad accident and spent 26 consecutive weeks in hospital. got hit by a car. And just tell us what the, the upshot of that accident yeah. was. <laughs> I, I, I now have an artificial leg below limb, uh, have a wired up ankle, and your ankle's a lot like your wrist, you know, you've got a lot of rotation, I've got very little rotation in my ankle at all, and I still have a steel rod in, in my thigh, my right thigh, so um, as I've said to a couple of people, I'm the clown that goes to the airport and all the bells, whistles and sirens go off and they have to frisk me every single time, and I hate it to be honest with you, but that's just part and parcel of my life, you know. You can smile about it now, and it's, it's several mm. decades on, but you, you've lived with this prosthetic limb for, as I say, nearly nearly 40 years. At that time, uh, as a young man, how, how dispiriting was it? Um, well, because I was there for 20, I was there for 20 odd weeks before I lost my limb, you know, they tried to save it. A, a surgeon actually came out from Scotland to, to um, do all the specialist work on me, and I had untold... Um, Operations. Probably the one thing that I do look back on, um, and, and I hope people understand what I'm going to say here, is that 
I was probably really very, very lucky, apart from what I had, that I never ended up getting AIDS because that's about the time when things like that started to happen with blood transfusions, and I had about six or seven blood transfusions as well. So I think I, I dodged a bullet there, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. It seems to me that every time something really significant has happened in your life that would fell a lot of people, you've just used it to, to spur yourself forward. Is, is that something from your childhood? Were you always someone who could sort of pick yourself up when you'd taken a knock? Well, being with five boys and a girl in the family um, and being sports-minded, I mean, we're always providing half the rugby team, half the <laughs> soccer team, half the cricket team in the neighbourhood that we were. And, um, we're, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't like running second on a race course, and I certainly don't want to run second in life itself, you know. Um, I'm a cup half full person, and um, yeah, I'm very competitive. Yeah, I guess that's what keeps me going. So, tell me about the early part of your your training career, and it's not just you, is it? It's mm. it, it's definitely you and Diane, your wife. I've met Diane; she's a mm. she's a wonderful woman, and she's been by your side all all the way. So, tell tell us about the early early days and how much of a, a struggle it was to get to where you wanted to get to. When, when we started out, we started out with about six seven horses, and we even even though I'd never worked. I, I don't think I'd even trained a winner at that stage, but. It, because of, of my golf and my relationships and everything like that, I had a couple of really nice owners who gave me horses to train. Um, but when I had my accident, I was in a wheelchair for a good while, obviously to get used to the leg and everything like that. Um, but we struggled for probably two or three seasons. Everybody said you can't train winners from a wheelchair. Um, but we just started to win the odd race or two, and we went to a place called um, Blenheim, and um, we won the trainers' prize there over a three-day carnival. Beat a lot of good trainers, Bruce Marsh, who trains in Singapore, Paddy Bussett, and the likes of them. And then all of a sudden, I'm not going to say it, 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 it didn't help me, but it certainly didn't worry me the fact that I was a person who's a wheelchair at, at wheelchair or on an artificial leg, and I managed to overcome it. So I might have got a little bit more publicity than I should have, and I think that's what helped us. Yeah. So even now, you, you reflect on that as a, an advantage of some sort? I think we turned a, a, a disadvantage into an advantage. Certainly, certainly um, once we started to train winners, it was always the person who, you know, just like you said, you've overcome a bit of difficulty along the way. And, and people react well to that. I know they do. So you started to do well, but you never expanded the stable beyond 35 or 40 horses. Why was that? I couldn't handle it. That's as simple as that. I tried, and it just drove me nuts, you know. It's just, just too many. We, we're, we're always around about the 35 to 40. We might get up to 45 at Christmas time because we do race a lot at Christmas time. Um, when I got to 40, like a lot of blokes in life, I wondered whether I was going in the right direction, so I actually went to Australia. Worst thing I ever did, probably lost 50 grand in 12 months, um, set us right back. But I had uh, a wife and two young children at that stage, and um, we went progressing the way I wanted to. Um, financially, I guess, is probably the biggest factor. Um, so I went to Australia, didn't work out. Um, we came home, but we'd specialised in getting horses off other trainers and doing well with them, and it's only in the last six or seven years that we've actually gone out and bought horses. For where we are in the Trainers Premiership in New Zealand, we'd have bought the least amount of horses of any of the top 20 trainers for a long time. Yeah. The lure of Australia is, I guess, obvious that the bigger money and the sort of high-profile tracks and the idea that you could make an impact in, in what's a, a massive horse racing jurisdiction now, one that's on the up. But when I look at pictures of you training, I think you couldn't wish for a more 
idyllic setup, and New Zealand's such a beautiful country, and you go and train on the beach and, and what mm. have you. It just looks it, it looks dreamy in, in many respects. Yeah, I, I, we, we've actually trained over 20 winners in Australia. We've won a couple of listed races in Australia as well. Um, but I guess we know our niche market. We know where we're best placed, and we're happy where we are in the South Island. Yeah. And look at that. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't love waking up to this every morning? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, it's, that's not far. We can work six horses in an hour and a half from our place. That's at a be- uh, beach called Spencer Park. And the black horse, uh, you won't have noticed there, that's a horse I hope to bring here next year. Uh, I dream ahead who won the July Cup. Yeah. The black horse that you mentioned, the very dark horse the there one in the middle. middle. Yeah. He's by Dream Ahead, and he's a horse called Sensei. That's right, yeah. Uh, Sensei is is named for your son Johnny, who That's you right. lost in tragic circumstances in in yeah. in 2013. And, and the idea was that you and, and Johnny and, and your son Matthew, your other son Matthew, were, were all going to train together. Just, just tell me a little bit about about Johnny's life. Yeah, Johnny Johnny was a really gifted sports person. Um, he played rugby league in the New Zealand University's World Cup. Um, we actually wanted to pull the horse Pitbull because on a league field, he was he's not much bigger than me, but on a league field he was very tough and he was very gifted. Um, and they had a move called Pitbull, which obviously focused around him. Um, he represented New Zealand in judo and he went to Samoa. Um, he only ever fought in two taekwondo tournaments in Australia and he won both of them. He trained in Japan for the best part of four or five weeks under one of the world's leading judo instructors. and. I think there was thirty odd people in the class, and um, he was the only person that never had a black belt. And, and the, the sensei, the instructor, at the end of it, took off his black belt and gave it to my son, which we still have. You know, it's quite, quite sentimental, quite, quite, quite. Yeah, it's quite touching what he did, and it meant a lot to my son. But my son always suffered from depression. He had done from, since he was fourteen, and he took his own life at twenty-eight. And this is still relatively recent. It's twenty thirteen. Yeah. And I, I've seen what a close-knit family you are and a close-knit knit family unit. But, Michael, you, you've, all, you've wanted to talk about... Oh, I've been very open about it, yeah. ...Johnny and, yeah. and Johnny taking his own life because you want to raise awareness for it. Just, mm. just tell us a little bit about some of the work you've done in New Zealand for that. Um, well, one of the big things, um, uh, Canterbury Rugby League, um, when my son played to both Hornby and Rickerton clubs, you know, and um, every season when those two meet they play for the Johnny Pittman Memorial Trophy and we give a prize to the winning team plus the player of the days and they get great publicity on the sideline they have half a dozen people with um, banners on um, to say it is alright to say please or yes or help or whatever it says because um, there's a lot of sporting people in particular high achievers do suffer from depression you know we all put on a great face at times but inwardly, there's a lot of people suffering that no one knows about, you know, and um, um, I've spoken to various people about it and people have rung me, whatever, but I, I mean, you know, we're not happy with what Johnny did, but he did it for his own personal reasons, but, you know, you know I wish he hadn't, obviously, you know, but it was his way out of life, I guess, yeah. Many people, when they're, they're dealing with somebody taking their own life, particularly somebody close to them, talk about their their anger directed at that person. I, I don't sense oh, that from you. No, not got no anger. I had a lot of help myself. I mean, I got pretty depressed about it. I'm, I'm nearly to that stage, obviously. But um, I was asked by, um, I went to a 
shrink and uh, a few times and he said to me one day I want you to give me a pen and a piece of paper and he said I want you to write down the good things that your son did and the and the poor things or the bad things well I mean I couldn't write down there was one column to the left and one column to the right and the good column was full of different things I couldn't write one bad thing down you know my son was a really good boy yeah so it's Sensei the horse that's named for Johnny, yes. and hopefully Sensei will come to Ascot next year. But yeah. he's got a pathfinder, yeah. and the pathfinder yeah. is is Enzo's lad, who you hope to run in the King Stand and the Diamond Jubilee. How happy are you with him? How's he been trained? Oh, look, we're really happy. He went to Hong Kong and he failed in Hong Kong, but he doesn't go right-handed, and I know Ascot's right-handed, but it's a straight run, so it doesn't matter what leg he gets on, you know. Um, he prefers good tracks, and, and fortunately in the last sort of 24 hours it looks like we're going to get a reasonable track. Um, but he has, he has run an exceptional time when he won at, at, um, at the Telegraph in January. He, he, um, he carried top weight of 58 and gave away 6 kilos to most of the horses. And he ran um, 1.695, broke 1.7. Well, I mean, I know we've got fast clocks in New Zealand and we run phenomenal times at times, but I can't recall any other horse breaking 1.7. So, um, yeah, that's him in the white cap just to the leader. The horse I hope to bring here is the horse out wide in the red cap. And the horse out wide in the red cap is travelling rather well at this stage and yeah, looks like it, the best horse in the yeah, race. Well, he covered a lot of territory, but, but I mean, you've got to remember there's a few Group 1 winners in behind this race. Bostonian that's gone to um, Brisbane and won both days, he's in the blue and white. And, um, yeah, he's a big, strong horse, my horse. So you look at the field and you've got two exceptional world-class yeah. sprinters in there in Potash and Blue Point and one that's not far away in Mab's Cross. What are your realistic aspirations on Tuesday to start with? Yeah, well, I, I obviously hope um, he goes... Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I hope he wins it. Of course, I do. I'd be stupid to sit here and say anything different. But I, I'm realistic enough to know that this is... You know, the horse deserves to be here. Let's face it, he's won two Group 1s in New Zealand. We paid 15000 for him. He's won 300 thousand, close to 400000 New Zealand dollars. So he's well in front on the, on the, you know, the ledger side of it. The owners are here for a good time as well. Most of the owners, are, 95% of the, the, the syndicate are going to be here in, in regards to their percentage shares. I mean, they're going to lap it all up. This is Royal Ascot. This ain't just a picnic meeting out in the bush. This is the best meeting of the year on any any jurisdiction, you know. And they've come across with their eyes wide open. And uh, it, it's as much about being here as it is about the horse, I guess. And, I mean, if we can run a good, honest race, I mean, I'd love to run top six. Mm -hmm. There's been champions from all over the world who contested races at Ascot and not run top six. If we can run the top six, he'll certainly get a pass mark. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Delighted to say that I am joined by the man who is showing them all the way this season in the riding stakes, Sheen Murphy, and the Racing Post senior writer, Lee Mottestead. Gentlemen, welcome back to the, to the Luck on Sunday studio. And Lee, just reflecting on, on Michael Pittman there for a moment, I think there is only one horse we can cheer for on Tuesday now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it will bring the house down. I mean, just a remarkable man to have had life experiences that he has had to go through the the wretched sadness that he has gone through and to retain that sense of positivity to want to keep giving back to society he's just a remarkable human being and talk about sort of keeping it real Asheen we all get wrapped up and bound up in our, our own little world and what a great little world it is but sometimes you just have to stand back and 
appreciate what life's all about, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, he's come over. He's come through the most extreme adversity, mm. and it's great to see him here and well. And hopefully, his horse will run a storm at Ascot. I know some jockeys are are quite superstitious. Are you? Not really. No, Touchwood. Um, Frankie is very superstitious. He um, he wears the same set of irons. So there's something on his left or right iron before the Derby every year. Um, tape or something silly, but. No, thankfully I don't share the same views. I only asked that question, you might wonder why I asked the question, because it is a year to the day since you appeared on Luck on Sunday oh, last. And of course it went on to have quite a happy ending at Royal Ascot. Uh, but this last year was what you had to say to me about the, uh, about the Jockeys' Championship. You talked about the championship, the, the jockeys' championship. Where, how do you, how do you feel about that as regards a, a realistic possibility this year? Yeah, no, I was actually looking at. It, uh, I've, I've tried to keep it off my mind because there's no point uh, getting really bogged down in it. But, um, but Sylvester's kind of away, away and gone already at this stage. Uh, he's developed quite a lead over Danny Tudup, who's doing well, and I think Danny Tudup's on 31, Sylvester 47. Uh, James Doyle on 28 and uh, unfortunately I'm only on 15 so it's a good job you're not getting bogged down in those numbers <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I know I spent hours studying them this morning I must say well now who's on 47 winners in the jockeys championship so the trajectory has been good and upward and this is a very pleasing chart to look at isn't it for you at the moment yeah, touch wood. Um, we use this again. <laughs> the, um, no, hopefully it keeps going well. The stables I'm riding for, the horses are healthy, they're winning, and as long as that continues, hopefully I can keep uh, giving rides and, and, uh, and getting the job done. It's been a brilliant, you know, not just 12 months, but 24 months, really, since this, this sort of chapter of your, of your career began. What would you say was the key moment when you thought things were really clicking into gear? Yeah, interesting that. Um, I suppose finding Roaring Line as a two-year-old was important. Um, he looked like he had a m massive chance of being very good, uh, having won a Kempton by about nine lengths and a novice under a penalty, which isn't an easy task. And, um, and then he went and won a Group 2 at Newmarket. I suppose finding Ben Battle initially really helped my career. He was my first Royal Ascot winner. And um, he projected it to another level. He gave me that bit of confidence that I was riding a very good horse and uh, possibly go on to win Group 1's arm. But Nick, the defining moment initially was getting my first Group 1 winner on a claim. Mm. It took so long, and um, I know we say that, and the public will think in jest, oh, how did it take that long, or was it actually that long? But for me, mm. I've been riding Group 1's for four years, and it just was a massive relief to finally win on a, a claim in the Prix de la Forêt. Because the younger you are, the more the time is stretched out. <laughs> the older you get, of course, Lee, as we know, time yeah, starts to wrong. concertina. So for us, it felt like no time. But I can completely understand what a she means when you, you're hungry for it, you're impatient for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but my word, since a claim, the floodgates have opened. Um, and I think... The, the success last season, they say with, with Roaring Lion, but on other horses too... Yeah. Um, was hugely impressive. And I, I remember writing a piece, don't mean to embarrass him, writing a piece after the eclipse last year, when I said more than 
anyone I can remember, Sheen reminds me hugely of Walter Swinburne as a jockey. Um, and he rides like Walter. I think Walter was a jockey who the, the racing public warmed to. And I think they warmed to Sheen as well, partly because of his riding, but partly because of his character as well. Um, he seems, you seem as a person to sort of get the whole idea that you are doing a job in the entertainment business and your job is partly to entertain people. Um, and I think you do that very well. So I think the package as a whole is not only bringing you great success on the race course, but I think it is endearing you to people who watch the sport. Is that a fair representation? No, I think Lee is very kind. Um, I am aware that uh, horse racing needs somebody to promote it. We're very fortunate to have Frankie Dottori. He's fantastic for the sport. He's a great jockey and an unbelievable man. Uh, very good on TV. He's great to watch. And I suppose I realised that um, we need more young people to be interested and get involved. And I'm a fan of having concerts after racing. Goodwood had one the other day. You know, if a couple of those people, there was probably 10,000 there, mm. if 1,000 returned to the races, then that was a productive evening, mm. in my view. So without going off too much off the point, um, anything to promote the sport is, is value and very important. And it is vitally important in the sense that you, you speak to, to Rod Street or the people, anyone at Great British Racing or anyone who's involved in promoting the sport, and they will tell you there are very few people, particularly in flat racing, who the general public not even would recognise but would mm. have heard of. I wrote a piece in the, in the Post on Saturday about the Queen and her racing story, and it remains the case that really outside of the Queen and Frankie de Tory, flat racing doesn't really have any public figures, and racing's marketing people will tell you that with the best one in the world, the, the, the Queen is an old lady and won't be around forever. And Frankie de Tory spoke in his Racing Post interview today of himself as a fossil when he goes to the race. He said, I feel like a fossil. And at some point, racing will need to be in an era post-Frankie and post-The Queen. And in those days, we will need figures who can transcend yeah. the racing bubble and be of interest to people outside the sport. But what you can't do, Asheen, is you can't fake it, can you? You can't think through gritted teeth, I'd better put on a face today and deliver some decent content. You kind of have to enjoy it up to a point, don't you? Absolutely. I think um, you know James Doyle interviews incredibly well, yeah. and he's very good for the sport. Yeah. And obviously I'll be biased with other people because I just like them, but Jim Crowley's an intelligent guy and also interviews very well. So, look, um, the more we can do to help people get involved and encourage them to develop an interest in flat racing, the better. Um, you know, whether that's going to schools and spending half an hour there, it, it, uh, it can't do any harm. And you do quite a bit of that, don't you? Yeah, because I was one of those young children who, uh, who idolised some jockeys. Um, at the time, it was probably Johnny Murta, Mick Canan, Richard Hughes. And, uh, and to, if they visited my school, I'm sure there was only 50 or 60 people in the whole school at the time, middle of nowhere, Ireland. But it would have got everyone probably to go racing locally uh, that year. So anything small is fantastic. 
Obviously, you're an incredibly driven, competitive person. You articulated that by telling us how painful it was to wait for that elusive first group one, even though you were doing very well at the time. But there's a sense watching you around the race course that you can have a laugh at the same time. You can not take it too seriously all the time. Is that quite a delicate balance to strike? Uh, I think that's a fair point. Um, Absolutely. I probably spent a couple of years uh, taking life too seriously. And um, I realised life's pretty fragile and it's important to enjoy going racing and when you have a nice horse to get a little bit of a buzz off it and it's not a sin to show that, um, you know, you've enjoyed that. And I noticed it yesterday when you were talking to Lydia after you dead-heated it at Sandown with Tom Marquand. You sort of... (laughs) You sort of got a bit of a kick out of that, even though most people, if they dead heat, would think, oh, that's annoying, that's half the percentage gone, and I <laughs> wanted the win outright. But there was something you you quite quite enjoyed about it. I did. Uh, it's owned by a very nice uh, supporter of mine, actually, Steve Parkin, and Joe Foley, who manages him, was good to me. So um, so I was, I was pleased to ride a winner, and I got to the front too soon. I had a bad trip, three wide. Uh, Tom gave his a much better ride. I've won on Pesto before. And uh, and I don't sit beside Tom Macron, but he's a good friend of mine. He's a very nice guy, top rider, and I've never dead heated for a winner before. So um, I, I don't mind what way they come, <laughs> to be honest. As long as they win, uh, I'm more than happy to split the prize money. You know. And you don't mind winning for them. You certainly don't mind winning for your main boss. Sheikh Farhad, who was a, a very entertaining and engaging guest on this program not so long ago, and it looked like you and Mr. Goldston unleashed another nice one yesterday. Yeah, uh, New King won impressively. Uh, he really drew away from the field. Uh, he loved the ground, and I hope the horse progresses. It was thrill for Sheikh Farhad. It was his birthday. Yes, unfortunately, I forgot to mention it to Lydia on Racing TV, <laughs> but I did go back and say to her, I hope. Um, I hope she said it, so, uh, or she mentioned it later on. H- highly embarrassing, Nick, to be honest with you. But you're, you're, you obviously have a very good relationship and a very good friendship, yeah. and sometimes that comes with attendant difficulties when you are uh, quite close to somebody who you work for as well, but you guys obviously manage that very well. Yeah, so I first rode for Sheikh Fad in my first year riding, mm. and uh, I know him a long time. He is my biggest supporter, uh, the most loyal person you can imagine and uh, and all he wants to do is see me do well so as a result um, you know he never puts pressure on me although I'm retained by Katai Racing and his brothers are heavily involved and and really love going and watching their horses run uh, if I can get on a really nice horse he doesn't force me to to ride his and you know, you can't imagine any other owner being like that. So hats off to him. I, I can't thank him enough. And I really, really enjoy the position I'm in. I enjoyed the interview with, with Jamie Spencer earlier in the week in the Racing Post that mm-hmm. Graham Dench yeah. did. And he, Jamie was talking quite a bit about his time running for Shea with whom he's still very good friends, yeah. and was saying the, the operation simply just needed the streamlining at the time. But the, the owner himself is sufficiently committed and has been sufficiently committed that it was always going to bear fruit with that persistence. Yeah, I think so. And I think what, what is fascinating about Sheikh Fahad is that it's, it's clearly it's not just for him um, an accoutrement to his life. I think sometimes with, with very wealthy owners, yeah. 
um, racing can be a little bit like a, a Gucci handbag or a pair of Prada <laughs> shoes. It, it's part of the, the, the set, part of the appearance. With Sheikh Fad, it's clearly a huge burning passion. You, know, you speak to David Redvers, who's racing manager, about him, and he'll tell you he knows all about the form book, he knows all about the breeding, he's giving views, he's giving input. He's clearly got passion for his horses, but he's also, quite encouragingly, he's, when you speak to him, it, it's evident that he does want to grow the sport as well. The whole Kipco sponsorship of, of Champions Day and the Champion Series is in his mind about trying to grow the sport and bring young people, those people at those concerts that Shin was talking about, into the sport. Um, so I think he, he's a big win for racing. And I think what's interesting with him too is that, you know, we, we, I think in this program we'll be talking about owners and syndicates and that, that type of thing as well. And the, some of the major owners that we've got, the, mm. the, with, with the influx of major Middle Eastern owners from very rich families, they've been a, a great blessing to the sport in that they brought so much investment. But very often, I think, to people watching the sport, they can seem almost cold, distant figures because they don't maybe yes. express emotion. And don't engage with it in the way Absolutely. that in the, the, way the viewer that Sheikh, wants to. Sheikh Fahad does. When Sheikh Fahad is a winner, it's very obvious absolutely. that he's cock-a-hoop. Yes, absolutely. I think that's hugely important. The, the interesting thing I've always wanted to ask a, a rider this, particularly when you get a job for an owner rather than for trainers, and then you have to ride for a number of different trainers that they employ with whom you hadn't previously had relationships, for example. So obviously in Sheikh Fahad's case, you've got John Gosden, or Michael Stout, William Haggis, and the, some of the great new market trainers. When you suddenly started to feel that you'd had ex acceptance from them, how much confidence did that then give you? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, Sir Michael used me as an apprentice, so mm. I, I uh, was acquainted with riding for him. So you um, knew he didn't think you were terrible? No. It was I a good start. Yeah, I knew, uh, I knew he, um, he didn't mind putting me on some horses, so that was a help. Um, I'd never really ridden for John, but John uh, is the most pleasant person to ride for from the point of view. He doesn't really tie you down too much with instructions. He's very positive. He runs horses that can win, and um, and you only have to look who he employs and how long they've been riding for him uh, to note, you know, how easy he is to to ride for. But Andrew has taught us since we were apprentices. Andrew Balding. Yeah, I mean, think who have come through his hands: Rob Hornby, Kieran Schumacher, Jack Garrity, Tom Brown. There was nine of us at the time, Joey Haynes, and seven of us yeah. uh, became mm. professional jockeys. So he um, he prepared us well enough to ride for big big names, and uh, and he's a classic winning trainer himself. So I think it's not too daunting. I think it's a really interesting question, though, Nick. I remember when I was working with Richard Hughes on his autobiography. Mm. He was talking about his time when he was Prince Khalid, Khalid Abdullah's first choice jockey, and he was very candid in saying that part of the problem is you don't have one boss. In effect, you mm. end up with seven, eight, nine bosses. And he spoke about how there was a period when he felt he lost the support of, of Sir Michael Stout and then John Gosden, and then ultimately when he lost the support of Henry Cecil, who wanted an American jockey to ride for him at the Breeders' Cup, he pretty much knew that the, the role was coming to an end. Mm. And it is a hard, because you are... You are training, you are riding for an awful lot of people, and those people will all have the ear of the owner or the owner's racing manager. 
and it's very hard. We all know it's very hard to keep a lot of people happy at once. I, th I think Paul Hannigan found the same when he yeah. was he was retained jockey to shake hand yeah. as well. I, I think it is it's a it's quite challenging and um, and clearly it is going very well for you, which is uh, which is which is good news. And hopefully that will will continue as you say. Touch wood. We're going to talk about Ashin's uh, Royal Ascot rides in a few moments' time. If you remember this time last year, if you'd been paying close attention, you'd have ended up quite well rewarded by the end of the week. But we'll have a look back on. The action from York yesterday as well, because York raised £640,000 for Macmillan Cancer, which is an extraordinary achievement. Huge congratulations to William Darby and his team at York and all the people who've worked so hard on that charity race day down the years. We're going to take a look at some of the highlights on track, and we'll start with Gold Mount. Started life as Primitivo, won at Royal Ascot, sold for a King's Ransom to Hong Kong, did extremely well in Hong Kong, same ownership, back from Richard Gibson via Dubai to Ian Williams, not really expected much yesterday, and here he is in rear, taking advantage of a strong pace, and he comes to pounce. A good story, Sheen, isn't it? Yeah, I've ridden Goldman before. Um, Richard Gibson is a top guy, very good trainer. He does incredibly well in Hong Kong. Mr. Pan, who is a big supporter of mine, um, it was kind of between Richard and, and his uh, plan probably to send the horse back over here, change the scenery. He clearly enjoys a uh, little bit of digging the ground. Ian Williams has done a top job preparing him, and Andrea, who is brilliant on these tracks and riding out of his skin, gave him a super ride. It was great to see him back to his best. He must have the heart of a lion because he's been pounding around some much less forgiving surfaces for a long, long time. And to come and do something completely different, yeah. straight off the plane. I mean, Richard looks after his horses uh, very well and he wouldn't have sent him back over here if he thought he couldn't compete at a high level. But the horses, you know, being at Group 1 level placed... Um, Hong Kong is the most competitive racing environment although possibly not at the distances he was at but at the same time um, you know, it was fantastic to see him win yesterday but I think Raheen House uh, who Brian Mean did incredibly well with is probably going to be aimed at something bigger later on the year and, and he, could, um, he could be one to note they could both end up in the million-pound Ebor, Skybet Ebor, of course. But immediately after the race, Ian Williams wasn't quite sure. He's had a night to think about it, to sleep on it, and he joins us now. Ian, good morning. Good morning, Nick. All well? All very well, thank you. It sounded from what you were saying immediately after the race as though that was a very nice uh, surprise. Uh I think surprise is, is probably a little strong. We thought we had the favourite to beat in the race, um, but we thought that it would improved for his run. Um, and, you know, if you have a look back at his form at Maidan uh, earlier in the year, there aren't many of the horses in that race would have finished fourth in, a, in the Group 2 Gold Cup at um, Maidan. So um, he bought some very strong form into the race and, uh, and ran accordingly. What's he shown you since you, you've had him in your in your yard? Have you done an awful lot with him? Uh, we gave him he, when he came over. He had a he had a good break. You know, he'd had a tough race. Um, he's been Hong Kong, Dubai, over to us. Um, fortunately, we had that lovely spell of weather, and he got a, got to get out and get some grass and, and enjoy himself for a bit. But um, you know, I would have I would have put him as a gallop short going into yesterday's race, and thought that would probably give him a bit of confidence and put him tip top going forward. 
Well, he, he did it with great relish and gusto yesterday as well. Asheen saying he probably quite enjoyed a little bit of, of ease in the ground, something that he's not been massively accustomed to since his days with, with Alan King. There's that huge carrot of the million-pound e-board dangling for you. Have you given it any more thought since yesterday? Yeah, it, it's a huge carrot, and because of time zones and time differences, we haven't really had a chance to have a good conversation with uh, the owners or Richard Gibson. So, uh, I mean, he joined me um, with the plan of running in the Melbourne Cup. Um, obviously, uh, prep races in Hong Kong and the, the scenario is not very easy to get a distance horse ready there. Um, that's where the owners would like him to run. And I think we have to work back from this year's Melbourne Cup mm-hmm. to see exactly what we do do between now and then. The e-balls are great. Listen, it's a million-pound race. Of course, we'd love to run in it. But one thing you have to realise with this horse is that he isn't over big and he isn't going to take masses of racing. So we need to pick and choose our targets very well and ensure that, that Melbourne is where he ends up in November. Well, he's a great addition to the yard, and it must be a, it must be uh, extremely exciting for you to have a project like this to get your teeth stuck into. Oh, listen, projects are always exciting, but when they start off as as well as he has done, uh, it's 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 fantastic. And you know, he's a globe trotter. He travels. He does everything. Uh, somebody said yesterday, well, you know, you won't get slower ground in Melbourne, but he he hasn't been racing in slow on slow ground over a mile and two in Hong Kong. So. Um, he's been competitive in some great races there on fast ground on a tight track. He's he really is a, a horse for for you know all tracks all seasons. Uh, Ian, are you going to be represented at Royal Ascot this week? Yes, uh, just made the declarations for time to study Excellent. in Grand Vizier in the two and a half mile race on uh, Tuesday, which uh, they're two horses that should go very well, and um, we'll have. Byron Flyer and possibly Restorer in the mile and a half race on Friday. And of course, uh, Magic mm. Circle, who's just working by as I speak. How's he working? Very nicely. Yeah. Um, is set for the, for the Gold Cup on Thursday. Which looks, so, a, as, hot a, looks as hot a Gold Cup as, uh, uh, as we can remember. Which, which of those are you most excited about? I'm very excited about Magic Circle. His, his form with Kew Gardens at uh, Chester this year has been franked over what for him was an inadequate trip and although he's won round Chester it's a, it's a tight track for a big horse like him uh, the weather's stayed uh, a little inclement so the ground should be perfect um, Stratovarius I don't think that's a nut you would expect to crack but um, you know he's going to be there and uh, I'm sure he'll be poking around in the places Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell, Dubai. Here's a taster of what you can enjoy on this programme next week, because earlier this week I went to the Sydney Arms in Chelsea, my thanks to them, to talk to one of the true legends of worldwide horse racing, Gay Waterhouse. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, prize money in, in Australian racing, which we all envy hugely here racing for these massive purses. We saw how, how much money Winks retired with. There's been a bit of a row this week between uh, Amanda Elliott and her counterpart in, in New South Wales about the 
tit for tat. I've got more money than you have. Uh, do you see that as a as a healthy rivalry, or is it getting unhealthy between the two? States? As a rivalry, as it might be between North and South of England, or England and France, or Ireland and and uh, Northern Ireland, Southern you know, Ireland, but. Rivalry is good, and without rivalry, without competition, the sport would, would dwindle. And aren't we lucky that in Australia we are able to offer to the owners and to, to the participants for little money to be invested in for great return. So I think it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful scenario. So in and a keep, sense... Keep the rivalry going. Just <laughs> just keep piling on more money from all big races. Well, and... it's not so much that. Look, they work very hard. The clubs and the racing bodies work very hard uh, to... Uh, to be able to generate the money. A lot of it comes through sponsorship, some of it comes through uh, government funding, other comes from the tab. You know, all different sources make up that. But, you know, the sponsorship's huge. And if the sponsor uh, thinks that's the right race to be sponsoring, because I know I'm going to be on 500 television stations across the world, then that's what they do. And I know in the past you've been very generous about the heritage and prestige of British racing. But do you think here in, in Britain, Royal Ascot and everything else notwithstanding, we need to put more money into our big races if we're going to attract the Australian horses that we're not getting anymore? Well, you, you attract the Australian horses anyway, but you, they come for a different reason. They come for the prestige of being able to win on a very difficult course, be it Ascot or Goodwood or York because the tracks are so diverse they're so testing of the horse um, you know to think that Royal Ascot if you stand at the, the, the start of the Jubilee course you, you can't see the stand yeah. that's how the gradient is so r- remarkable we don't have that in Australia so you come for a different reason to enhance the cult's reputation so he can be more accepted you know uh, as the Coolmore when they bought um Merchant Navy last year, yeah. and, and then he was able to win the Coolmore in uh, as a three-year-old come over here and win the, the Diamond Jubilee. There you are, yeah. and, and all of a sudden people say in both North and South, "Hey, look, we know that horse. Oh yes, I'd like to send a mare to him." So once again, his career is enhanced. How long do you think we can live on our reputation? Do you think we can carry that on in, in perpetuity, offering relatively little prize money? And seems to work, doesn't it? I mean, uh, for the prize money, I can't comment. Uh, uh, that's something for only the government and the racing bodies to sort out but it, it certainly attracts people from all over the world this year in the Jubilee I think your Nick Smith was telling me we've got Singapore represented you've got America represented Wesley Ward's bringing seven two-year-olds I mean you know it's just fantastic and the New Zealander as well absolutely <laughs> how could I be so stupid of course <laughs> yes exactly very important and, and ju- just as far as um, it's, it's quite interesting that I'm talking to you today because it seems like I can find a connection with you to almost every news topic that's germane to British racing at the moment. Yeah. Not enough women riding winners at Royal Ascot. Um, we talked a little bit about prize money, and you've talked about the rivalry in Sydney and, and Melbourne. The other hot topic, David Redvers, who you'll know well, he's, he said that we're just not looking after our owners properly in this country, and we're not uh, doing enough to attract a broader spectrum of owners from different social backgrounds into into horse racing in, in the UK like you do in Australia. But look, that's up to every individual trainer to do that. 
you know, uh, I think Adrian and I do it extremely well. Uh, but it, you, you, you have to open your door to them. Now, you know, my father said, don't open your door every day to your owners because you won't get anything done. You know, it's like saying, come and sit with my, if I'm a stockbroker and sit with me all day long. You'd never get anything done. So every Sunday we open our stables for a couple of hours. They come in anyone, any of the owners or friends, and we do things for charity where people come and they can pat the horse and have a chit-chat, have their photo taken. We go in to a very nice house that I've decked all out in Dad's racing colours and we cheer the winners home and have a couple of champers. You know, it's great. And they get to meet each other. It's like a club. They get to meet each other. It's not costing them. You know, once you bought, bought your share in your horse, you're part of that natural club. It's lovely, you know. And communication's very important. You know, it's easy to communicate in this day and age. You've just got to have the mindset to do it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. He says he is leaving the game with a smile on his face. Just how broad is that smile as we say very good morning and welcome to Luck on Sunday, Jerry Minazida. Well, you look like a happy man. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm leaving the smile on my face. Um, yeah, no regrets. Um, no doors closed for the future. Who knows what the future holds? I'm just going to take some time out and relax. Um, do a few things I want to do. Spend my summer with my my two my twin boys, and just see where, what the future holds from there. Was that a big driver in your in your decision to say I need a break? The fact that you wanted to devote more attention to them. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a thing where you know um, I've, I've realised that they're the most probably the two. They are the two most important things in my life, um, and just there's a lot of situations happening in my life. And, yeah, without going into too much detail, there's been a thought process here that this might be round the corner. And it just, it just sort of came a time, actually, just before the Champions League final. And the situation unfurled. And I sat there and sort of made my decision basically on the Thursday and then went to Madrid on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, thought about things and thought, yeah, it's the right decision. Came home, made the announcement. You say it, in a, it's quite glibly that it was before the Champions League final, but there's a there's a kernel of seriousness to this because you're a, a massive Tottenham fan. It's Tot nothing to do with Tottenham. No, <laughs> Tottenham are in the Champions League. This has been part of your life since you were a, a very Six. small boy. It's been part of your family life as well. So did that, did that sort of make you play out your life a little bit in your own in your own head and think, well, what's it all about? No, I think the decision was there. You know, I went into this season, and I'm, you know, at the beginning of the season for certain things. You know, I've started the season with 25 horses. Um, you know, it's hard when you've seen the, the absolutely top of the game, um, to feel that you may be lacking a, 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 a sort of team that can take you to where you want to go. Um, so you know, there's been a few things going through my mind. I suppose I went up to York. Um, I had a good York Dante mm. meeting and two winners, a nice two-year-old first time out and Garris in the listed race. And honestly, most of it didn't get any real great kick out of it. That's being brutally honest. Um, you know, and that's, that's a sort of little reason. You start thinking, is this where you want to be at this moment? Are you really reveling in the situation? Are you really enjoying it? 
to the manner that you should do. Um, and as I say, horse racing was always my passion in life. And maybe there was an element where I wasn't getting the, say, the thrill that I should do. And then with a number of other things, then I sort of arrived at that point. I went to Madrid, thought it over in Madrid, um, said to my boys on the Saturday, we'd been out to lunch with a group of friends who always meet from Tottenham, and sort of 14, was, 14 of us were in lu at lunch. Uh, finished the lunch about sort of five o'clock, and I said, my boys, you've got to go, we've got to go home, you're going to have to sit down for an hour and a half and relax, otherwise you're not going to last the evening out. <laughs> and they sat down on their... They sat down, went back to where we were staying. They sat down on their uh, iPads, and I went and sat down, had a coffee, and just quietly thought through things and thought, yeah, this is the moment. This is, this is it. You know, and is there ever a good moment? But it was just the time for me to make that decision. The, same, the, 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 the statement stands out in my mind when I made the decision. I had a smile on my face. The only very sad moment I had was with a group, the lads who worked for me. A few of them have been with me a long, long time people I've known since 1990, people I've worked with since 1990, and 93 when we started up Godolphin. You know, there's three of my lads who were with me when Godolphin very first started, and then they've worked at Godolphin, and they rejoined me when I came, came back to, um, you know, to train in England after I'd been in California. In fact, one of them, during his holiday, came and rode out for me in California. So people that I've known and are not just employees, actually... A good, good friends, and that that was the that was the emotional moment of it. Mm. Otherwise, in my own mind, I was very settled. Do you think, in some senses, when I read back that list of accomplishments and what's been an incredibly interesting career, do you think, in some respects, that you've lived a trainer's career already? Even though you're only in your early mid fifties, you've almost had enough high octane life experience almost to last a a fair bit longer than that. Oh yeah, the racing's, I've lived a dream in racing, you know, I've seen everything, I've been lucky enough to be around so many fabulous horses and had so many amazing times in my life, yeah, I've lived a dream and I've sort of seen the, the pinnacle going back to my Godolphin days, you know, lots of days in my own training career, um, yeah, maybe I've been spoiled. Tell me a little bit about that, that time with Godolphin. I mean, people take Godolphin for granted now as this global superpower. But what was it like being at, at the forefront of it when it was just a fledgling operation and, and just a, an idea, essentially, of Sheikh Mohammed's and the execution of that? Yeah, it was Sheikh Mohammed's idea. Um, when I first went to Dubai, the first year was Simon Crisford and Sheikh Mohammed. And, and you're, you're how old at this point? You're how old? That was in 1993, so I'm 30 years of age. Um, you know, started off with a, a small handful of horses. Um, honestly, it was Sheikh Mohammed's vision. Um, in the back of my mind, I thought, this is half crazy. But you, and that's, that's the truth. You know, I thought, why do you need to do this? What is it? But, you know, threw the heart and soul into it and worked away. Um, yeah, and that first year came back with was it a team of six, six horses. Um, Whitback Balanchine was the outstanding one. Um, she ended up Oaks and um, Irish Derby. Um, sadly, had colic surgery after that and didn't run again that year. But you know, even for that first thing, when she was second, beating a short head in the thousand guineas. Mm. The next day, state performer was fourth in the two thousand. We had a maiden win first time out um, at the meeting, and it was sort of fell into place. And the next year was the most amazing year that you could possibly be around. And it's. 
um, when I look back on that, I don't really appreciate how unbelievable it was to have to be around horses of that caliber and achieve those things. You know, Oaks one day, a Derby the next day, three Group Ones in, you know, you know, a classic in France, a Group One in Italy, and a Group One in Japan in one day. Mm. And, you know, times like that, which was just phenomenal. Um, yeah, and, they were, and you look back and say, when I look through my training career, that horses that caliber, that elite caliber, you know, I always relate to football because it's my passion. You know, horses that you see like Lantaras and Balanchines that are the, in football terms, are the Messis and the Ronaldos. Okay, well, there's, I, don't know, I don't know any women footballers, so I don't so watch that, but, you know, they're that caliber. But turning around to that is, and then training in my own period of time with my own license, and, and actually only twice thinking with all the group ones I have, and I wanted no detriment to them, but only twice feeling, having a feeling that I had a horse of that elite caliber. You know, you, real, you look back at those times and think you're around sort of four or five of them in a short space of time, and then you go, yeah. then you go from 1996 to now and say, in my hands, I've only twice felt I had horses of that sort of level. So your expectation bar for yourself was set so high, but you were a young man, you were an impatient man, you wanted yeah, success yeah, in your yeah, own name. Yeah. I, I read an article, Sue Montgomery in The Independent, 1995, and essentially the thrust of it was all, here are these great winners. We all know, it's said in the first paragraph, that these are all being trained by Jeremy Nazida, and this young genius is not being given the, the credit for them. Was that the way you were feeling? Was that an accurate representation of the way you were feeling at the time? No, it was fabulous times. Of course, you know, you know I had an important role in the, in the, in the whole operation, mm. but um, there are moments that will live with me for my whole lifetime. Um, if I said to you, I, I've never... I've never experienced before or after the thrill that I felt the day Lamtaro won the King George and Queen Elizabeth. Never. It was just like a, a moment where it was an unbelievable moment. I've never, say, before or after, never even got close to that. So that was a, you know, they were dreams. They, you know, I was living out a, a, say, a childhood dream and ambition. And how lucky was I? How lucky was I? And you'd had a brilliant grounding as well. Five years with John Dunlop. Four years with John Gosling. I, I think it was more than four with John, you know. Yeah, worked for John in America as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I did, I did a long apprenticeship, but it paid off later in my career. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. James, Invincible Army, who was a super two-year-old, three-year-old, and seemingly even better at four. We saw him this morning working up Warren Hill. W was that exactly what you wanted to see at this stage? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly what I wanted to see. Just, you know, fresh, but not quite boiling over. Looks fantastic. You know, we're just trying to get him there fit, but also fresh. He's two from two this year. He went to Doncaster and won the Camish. Then, of course, group race success at York. When you had him back in at the beginning of his four-year-old career, knowing how good he was at two and also three, was there a noticeable difference in him at all this year? Had he gone up a gear? Um, to be honest, no. Um, his work is similar to last year. If a little bit, he, he probably keeps himself to himself a little bit more. You know, he tends to, whatever lead horse we give him, he tends to go to it, go buy it, and, and that's it. 
So when, when we went to Doncaster, we didn't fully know what to expect. Um, I loved him in the prelims at Doncaster. He was just strolling around, relaxed. Um, and then he was like dynamite in the race and relaxed afterwards. I just think he's, he's so much more professional at the races this year. How good was the performance at York last time in your view? Um, don't think it was quite Group 1 level, okay. um, but it might be good enough for Group 1 level this year against the opposition. That's something you haven't done per se across the career. You, you've not, he's, he's contested plenty of group races, but it's obviously only been one Group 1 so far, which was last year's Commonwealth Cup. Is there unfinished business with, with Ascot and Royal Ascot in particular for you? Well, Ascot you know, hasn't been unkind to us. You know, Municipal yeah. Army won a Group 3 there. Um, we've had plenty of success there. Royal Ascot, yes. Yeah, I am used to driving back afterwards, a disappointed man. Um, we go into it with two favourites this year, and just as importantly, the, the stable seems in amazing form. I was going to um, say to you, how is your relationship with the Royal Meeting, you personally with it? Well, usually I have a top hat which is slightly too small. Uh, you go away having been disappointed on a hot day with a headache. Um, so personally, um, it's all ball being excitement leading to a little bit of disappointment. Um, this year feels different. This year, that little bit extra gap, I suppose he's gone by York in mid-May, but last year he went by the Temple Stakes, yeah. which was, or Temple Stakes Day, which was obviously later in the month. For a sprinter like him and knowing him as the athlete that he is, does every day almost count a little bit more going into a big meeting? I think so. I think the fresher he is, the better. Um, so we've been at pains to do very little with him since, um, since he won at York. The story of him is quite, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, of course, Sidemanana raced the dam. She was very good over here. She won a, a Falmouth at whatever price she was all those years ago for, for Clive Britton. But in terms of what she has produced, he's very much bucked the trend, hasn't he, Invincible Army? Yeah, no, well, he, he's had to. Um, I think he was something like a sixth foal, and it would be fair to say her first five weren't very talented. Yeah. Unless you count winning a handicap chase around Sedgefield as talented. Um, so when he came along at the Yearling Sales looking magnificent, everybody looked at him and went, well, he looks great, but, you know, she's produced five donkeys so far, so to speak. Um, you know, how can he really be the one? So he was 100,000 not sold as a yearling. And then we breezed him, and he breezed fantastic. But then at the same point, everyone thought, well, you know, she's produced five donkeys so far. Mm. You just how good will he be? So he was 300,000 not sold at the breeze-ups which is very good for me. Um, and since then, he's rarely disappointed. How much brilliance does he have at, at four now, do you think? Do you think this is, this is peak what he's going to achieve this year? I think so, and I think he was bred for it. Regime won her Falmouth as a four-year-old. Mm. Municipal Spirit won his Group 1, his Haydock Sprint, as a four-year-old. And he just seems to have it all now. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equuel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.